Well, hello. Welcome back to Where Love Lives with me, Lulu LeVay. How are you out there? Oh, thank God the sun is out and Soho is absolutely buzzing. Hooray! So I hope you're all staying positive and making the most of this lovely weather while it lasts. Last month, I had the fabulous Princess Julia on the show. If you missed it, where were you? What's wrong with you? Go back and listen to it again right now as it's a cracker. This month, however, I have writer and academic Tim Lawrence in for a chat in my very first remote interview about his love of writing and his love of David Mancuso. I think I made him blush a little bit down the ethernet cable. Tim is a prolific writer of all things disco. His books, Love Saves the Day and Life and Death on the New York Dance Floor are absolute must-reads for all of you interested in New York dance culture and nightlife between 1970 and 1983. He has also written Arthur Russell's biography and is currently working on Big Dog, David Mancuso's, which I personally cannot wait to read. Do check the show blurb for all the links to Tim's work and also to his podcast Love is the Message which he co-hosts with pal and fellow academic music type Jeremy Gilbert. Yet again this was a really enjoyable chat so enjoy the show. Hey Tim how are you? I'm good how are you? So this is my first kind of remote interview for my podcast so it's kind of like a new experience for me. I'm usually like looking at somebody like loveling in the eyes across the studio desk we'll but just I just have, have to, to imagine communicate that I, I mean, through voice <laughs> I know yeah uh I know sorry that I didn't mean to come across as creepy by the way that was just yeah so you went to bed at 5 a.m this morning yeah like, it wasn't thank it wasn't because I was dancing hard oh, so what so what, what exactly were you doing you were working well, yeah. uh, it was just an email interview, and it should have been pretty straightforward, but somehow or other, the questions just seemed to, uh, yeah. That's a bit late, isn't it, on a Sunday asked night? Asked me to. Well, it was my own. It was. It was. It was my own kind of doing. Yeah. Definitely. But so I was anyway, s- <laughs> it, it's it's done. <laughs> so, how do you do? You like doing interviews, or do you, are you kind of quite shy? Are you a shy person? Because like writers tend to be a bit shy sometimes. Do you think? Uh... That's an interesting question. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not too shy. I can talk about myself for ages. <laughs> okay, but well, I that's right, then. But, uh, so yeah. So how long have we got? No, I'm just kidding. But no. it's um, yeah. But uh, there are times when I kind of get a bit, you know, to get. I don't. know. I kind of prefer talking about the stuff that I'm involved with doing rather than myself. If that makes sense. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's quite um, a yeah. solid. I mean, you've written for those listening. Um, obviously, I've just given you the big intro just now. Um, but tell us, so you've written, how many books have you written? Do you want to just give us a brief overview of each book that yeah. you've written? Oh, a brief overview of each each long book. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah, well, there's three. Uh, the first was Love Saves the Day, A History of American Dance Music Culture, 70 to 79. Uh, and that really just became this big, you know, history of the period. Uh, no one had really written a big history of disco at that point, and no one had really focused on... Um, what became one of the main arguments of the book, which was the influence of David Mancuso, who ran this party called The Loft from February 1970 onwards. 
was a very it was a it was a private party um, and it was very progressive in terms of in terms of the way it functioned socially it's a very mixed crowd and also the way it operated sonically David was a real innovator uh, in terms of, of, of generating what it could what, what could happen between behind a set of turntables mm. and this culture mushroomed and expanded until it kind of came to be called this thing called disco uh, in many ways the kind of this what we might loosely call an underground downtown party scene uh, very much embraced disco, but it also exceeded disco. It was never just disco; it, it existed before disco, and it would and it would carry on after disco. And that was kind of the book sort of ended really with the backlash against the culture, in this, which peaked in the summer of 1979, and then the way the parties, such as the Loft and the Paradise Garage, and the second one, I sort of went on a little bit of a tangent uh, and did this what I sometimes call an anti-biography biography about the musician Arthur Russell, who grew up in Oskaloosa, Iowa, but ran away from home at a young age, and after staying in San Francisco uh, for a few years, ended up. Uh, uh, traveling and uh, to New York where he lived for the rest of his life and uh, Arthur just kind of was this is this beautiful musician who was always pursuing the music or, um, almost always uh, in a collaborative way uh, and and through this kind of sensibility found himself just instinctively effectively moving across all these um, effervescent mushrooming scenes that were taking root in New York City during the 1970s, this incredible period in the city's histories. So we had the rise of, of DJ-led party culture, which became disco, and there was, you know, around the same time, maybe slightly afterwards, there was the kind of, uh, the, you know, the, the rise of punk. Uh, Hip-hop was happening, not yet called hip-hop, but it was happening in the Bronx in the background, and that came through in the late 1970s. He really just just did all of this music, often moving between these scenes, forming different collaborations in this quite seamless way, and then finding ways for people within these scenes to start to collaborate. So everything kind of became very open and very cooperative uh, and very expressive. And then the last book was this, this book called uh, Life and Death on the New York Dance Floor, 1980-83. And it sort of picked up where Love Saves the Day uh, left off at the end of 1979 or beginning of 1980. <clears throat> and it sort of filtered that, the, the kind of its um, approach, if you like, to this period of the early 1980s through the, through the musicianship and the practices of Arthur Russell. Uh, because that was what was really going on. The early 1980s were this incredibly creative uh, and intera uh, interactive period in which musicians from three distinctive scenes that to a certain extent had been quite separate, uh, for want of a, you know, some better shorthand terms, maybe disco, punk and the emerging rap or hip hop scene, that by the end of the very 1970s, disco and punk in particular were already needing to go through some kind of transformation. Punk because it sort of somewhat run out of ideas, um, disco because it had become uh, overproduced and too generic and there had been this backlash against the culture. That even people within the scene, the people who were progressive sort of had some sympathy with because it had been kind of, you know, 
know, commercialised and ransacked, and they no longer wanted to play a lot of the disco records that were being released. So you had the disco scene and the punk scene in need of renewal, and the hip hop rap scene that had barely even started, and was always looking to kind of effectively integrate with other music scenes because that was the very nature of what the DJs and hip hop scene were doing. It was always about taking some music and putting it to a new use, effectively. And you're working uh, on a new book, aren't you? Actually, on yeah. David Mancuso's biography, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Which so... we'll, we will talk about like in a bit more detail when we, you oh. know, shortly. Okay. Um, how far have you got with it, actually? Uh, well, it's that's a really controversial. <laughs> Are you on a question. deadline? <laughs> <laughs> what is your publisher no, if saying? I, if only I don't. My publisher <laughs> says, "Do what you want to do." Okay. This is one of the things I really love publishing with Duke University Press. It's um. I mean, most, you know, a lot of university presses are a bit kind of, you know, aren't very good at kind of, you know, aren't that, they're not out, they don't exist in order to sort of cherish and and find a way to spread ideas. They can be a bit dry and can be lacking in style. And, but there's something about Duke's... It's, honestly, it's one of my yeah, favourite publishers, actually. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, because yeah, my book, yeah, yeah. I sent my book proposal to them first and they said oh, no. Right. Oh... <laughs> Well, they've made, they've, that is one big mistake they've made. Oh, clearly. well, I did get it out uh, on um, Palgrave Macmillan in the end. Yeah, which is fantastic as well. Which is still it's good. Fantastic. But Duke, yeah, for those amazing. listening now, I mean, if you're a bit of a nerd like myself and Tim, it's, they've got some amazing materials published. On yeah, they just, they? They're, really, they're just very beautiful books. And really, really good. Every, every book has its own voice. And the great thing about this is, you know, each of all of my books have basically been ended up being about 500 pages long and they've been these labours of love. And it's I mean, they're about... pretty chunky. I mean, how long... I mean, just think about the process. I know this this podcast is about love, the, the loves in our lives outside of oh, right. like, heterosexual, heteronormative relationships, etc. Mm-hmm. But mm. would you say... I have got your list of loves here. <laughs> but would you say writing is one of your loves? Yeah. I mean, Is it a love-hate relationship? Um, no, not really. It's funnily, funnily enough, it's not. There's not a lot of hate there right now. The main, the main thing I kind of feel is that, you know, if if there's one, if there's one kind of thing that I suppose you know I've yeah become a little bit known for is writing these books. I mean, there's lots of other stuff I kind of like doing. If I can write for an hour a day at the moment, that to me is is pretty great. It doesn't I mean, seem like enough time. All, well, it, it is a source of frustration because you it, it can take an hour just to kind of warm up into it. You know, <laughs> I'm, yeah, yeah, no, for, for sure. me anyway. Uh, no, no, absolutely. Sometimes well. I just... can spend an hour just looking at a paragraph and not actually doing anything, <laughs> and that's work in <laughs> itself. A paragraph, I can get a sentence for an hour. Oh so. my god! I'm just no, it's uh, it's I'm 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 quite good at actually moving, getting you know, kind of. Um, being quite active when when I sit down to do stuff. Because I do like your but... style of writing. Because um, when oh, I because as an academic myself, because I think we're quite similar, aren't we? We come from party yeah, backgrounds, very... and I call myself a PhD DJ. You could be called a PhD DJ. <laughs> so you know, we kind of come. Some people from... used to early. Some there were some early jokes. I think there was at one point some in the early nineties a guy called DJ Professor or something. That's so. hilarious. That was, but, uh, yeah, well, maybe, maybe for some. But. It's quite interesting because it's kind of like, um, this is something I talk about my students with quite a lot, about high and low culture and thinking right. about how, like, especially with during COVID and the government's response to the nightlife economy, that is seen mm. as a form of, like, low culture, low art, less important. And that's yeah. something, I mean, and, and we both come from that environment I mean, have you ever come yeah. across, like, how would you there is, defend there that? There is that, but I sort of, well, I don't think, you know, I don't, I think that we, you know, what we, 
I'd sort of say that there's to a certain extent been a complete collapse, or not a complete, but you know, a pretty substantial collapse in the way that most people experience those distinctions. There are some people who go around in this world, like William Rees Mogg is probably one of them, mm-hmm. who will kind of only, you know, will, will co- create an image in which he only listens to, you know, orchestral music and mm. only wears clothes that are made on several row and will only, you know, or might, you know, if he's going to go out, he might go to the Royal Opera House or who knows what. And then there's the way that most people are living their lives, including very wealthy people, which is to, you know, often simultaneously or largely embrace popular culture. Um, there's, you know, there aren't, I don't think there are that many people who necessarily straightforwardly look down it. But what I do think is that there's a sense in which there's an undervaluing of people who are working creatively and the conditions in which they need in order to be able to survive and the way that you know the government is is kind of happy has shown itself to be pretty relaxed about exposing them in terms of employment conditions in general, uh, basic rights uh, to minimum income, and uh, all, yeah, and also just during the pandemic, this kind of you know reluctance and slowness to support you know the dance floor under the industry. There is just also this thing about cities becoming very very expensive, and people who live in cities increasingly wanting to be surrounded by, you know, maybe art galleries, which are okay because they don't create much noise and don't have lots of people showing up to get into them at, 12, at midnight for the most part. And then party spaces or even live music and, uh, venues and, and clubs where, you know, neighbours can get much more kind of concerned at you know, this, this, the slightest kind of, you know, mishap or misstep or what or crowded space that might emerge in the street will street will lead them to want to close it down so you know that sort of seems to be yeah. it's just generally Rather, it can be looked at that, in quite a negative way you know absolutely. dance music culture which is disappointing i mean obviously you you know i've, I've done a bit of research on yeah, yeah yeah how i mean a lot of people i've interviewed for this podcast yeah. uh have yeah. really seen like the the like club culture and the dance was a safe space to kind of be to, and that's how i read well, it that, and i think you read that as well for <clears> your <throat> not only about uh, the scenes that you've written about, but also your own experience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my own experience, I don't want to dwell on it too much, but I lost my parents when I was pretty young, maybe Mm. 19 when my dad died very suddenly in a routine operation. And um, my mum passing away three years later um, when I was 22, and uh, she never really recovered from the loss of my dad. So it was, I was very close with my parents. I was, it was extremely traumatic. And somehow or other, uh, I was introduced properly, I would say, to party culture at that point. I had, had the good chance to stumble into the Hacienda during the Summer of Love, and that's kind of, kind of went absolutely And you survived. You came that. out the other side. <laughs> came out the other side and <laughs> never felt better, to be honest with you. So how does it help uh, but, you? But I didn't know how to go back. Mm. Uh, so that has the end I kind of went back you know when term restarted and I went on a Friday night thinking it'd just be the same it was some indie night and I just didn't get it I just wasn't knowledgeable about party culture at that point and I was in my final year at university so focused on the studies I didn't really have a, a, a network group or a friendship group that were doing that kind of thing at that time but but a few years later after my parents had uh, both had both passed away 
Uh, my dad had already passed away by the time I, w I went to the Hacienda one night in 1988, but a little later, another friend took me out and we did a bit of raving and then I, uh, I was introduced to the garden club, Phil Real Night at the garden club mm. in Common Garth, which is now the Apple store. I used to go rather, to that club. Rather sadly. When oh, I first moved to London, amazing. yeah. Really? So when did you, what nights did you go? Uh, Tuesday nights, I think. I can't remember what it oh, was. Right. can't remember. Yeah. It's all a bit I of a really blur. I really love I seem to remember like a drag queen getting into my cab and escaping from being chased by somebody after one of those nights. <laughs> that was like yeah, well, London in the early nineties. Typ typical, yeah. Well lovely, well, lovely. Follow me down. Deep down well, lovely. I sort of um I'd always had a little bit of a sense of being an outsider. My dad had come out of Nazi Germany. My mum, mm, I read that, yeah. Grew up in a Jewish family, and I grew up in—I basically grew up in the suburbs. Because this is another thing well, we have in common. Because my dad's background is uh, Polish Jew. Oh, really? That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, and so I think you—I you, think I read that your dad had what kind of shops around Soho? It was. Um... Well, my mum—it was my mum's family, which they—they uh, they had a little lighting shop. It was initially you just buy uh, put do-it-yourself lampshade yeah. um, packets uh, and it was called you maker it was kind of spelled in a kind of semi-funny way u-m-a-k-a -A. Okay. it really meant you make a as in you make a whatever cake <laughs> and so it was you maker lampshade company and it was on walker's court which was this tiny little thoroughfare at the end of Berwick Street. I mean, I was in, it was an incredible space. This was in kind of what I guess we would now call old Soho. Uh, the market was was still flourishing. There was a, and the, the whole of Soho was filled with, of course, theatres, music stores, and the porn industry, uh, as well as loads of Italian delis. Mm. It, it felt very cosmopolitan. And as a kid growing up in the suburbs, which is where my dad had, my dad had come out of Germany as this, as a fifteen year old, obviously not speaking English. Uh, and then went on to become an English teacher, which I was always thought was an amazing story, and then got his first job in the suburbs, and that's where I grew up in Wokingham. And uh, although I had a very privileged, you know, lovely, caring, etc., childhood, um, I did have, a, <clears throat> for various reasons, always had a bit of a sense that you know, we, we didn't quite fit in, we were somewhat outsiders. I mean, I, th I was the only Jew in my school, there were no, there were no kids from, you know, other kind of ethnic, cultural, racial backgrounds. Mm. It was an entirely white, <clears throat> you know, white, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant um, school. And uh, and I, that was, you know, I grew up with that, and apart from very occasional and fairly minor-ish anti-Semitism, generally was fine. But when I started to be able to connect to cities, whether it was visiting my mum, who would work for a couple of days in, in my grandma, my mum's mum's shop in Soho, and, you know, I'd visit this place sometimes as a kid, you know, sometimes including as a young kid. And my eyes would just be kind of popping, <laughs> walking through Soho, of course. And um, and it was very exciting. And, you know, yeah, <clears> so <throat> I wanted to ask, so, I mean, it's because we have such similar backgrounds, actually. So my grandfather had shoe shops around East London. Um, and I'm just thinking about, like, also not fitting in and thinking about my own experience slight anti-semitism at school but also just generally just feeling not fitting in and there was something and i think everyone people can kind of identify this thing of having a new family on the dance floor and this exactly. safe environment and that's is that something that you felt as well yeah i mean i was you know after my parents died i had an amazing network of friends and, and family that survived including very dear uncle and aunt who really you know did everything they can to look at look after me but you know there was this whole creative 
in my life and it wasn't quite clear what was going to fill it and I sort of ended up filling it over quite a long period of time probably um, with just trying to make new connections really and it was at the point when I was really quite despondent I was really feeling very low um, I was probably at, at, at the very least a bit depressed mm, I did read I that in your angry. biography actually yeah and I was kind of slightly angry as well about things uh, for, for quite good reason and um <clears throat> I was, in, I was getting into journalism and it was kind of propping me up, but I'm not sure I was really cut out to be a journalist. I, you know, I suppose ultimately if I'm, I sort of hover between whatever you might think of as journalism and academia, mm. um, but I wasn't feeling it. Things weren't quite right in journalism, but it, I was kind of there. And I went, I was introduced to the, at this low point where I was really questioning kind of, you know, about the meaning of life sort of thing that my I was taken to the gardening club and it was partly the intimacy of that space it was kind of cellar the sound system was really good it was partly about it being a collective of DJs so there was already I think in these situations you have a bit of a sense of a preformed community when it's a collective that's putting in these events and the New York sound that was coming through at that time and was really you know prominent and feel real was very warm and um vibey and open and with all these kind of jazz and dub and latin and african elements so it had a very very positive feel and of course a lot of mdma was going around <laughs> well. oh great and, so fun. Um, and i just and i felt and it was it is this what you tell i know you're working at university of east london do you tell your students about these uh, these heady mda days well, uh yeah of course because <laughs> so long ago and I usually turn off the mic because everything is dual learning now isn't it we've got to be in person and also oh yeah sure. recording online at least at UEL so yeah I switch off the mic at those times usually but uh, yeah but I felt uh, I felt um, this thing that I had already begun to sense I think whenever I kind of happened to end up visiting London uh, but it just intensified you know many times over when I went into the gardening club I'd already also had a bit of this, of course, in rave culture, but somehow it was in that space of, of, the, of the garden club. But I really felt I'd found a home. I really felt a sense of, 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 of it being comfortable. Um, and that's when, that. this is a good segue into talking about your first love, which is David Mancuso, which is the book you're <laughs> writing at the moment. First love, David Mancuso. I know that sounds quite romantic, but sweet. It is romantic. I don't, know, you... if, I don't know if David was my first love as such, but let's not go there. Yeah, but uh, I mean, you know, certainly... you interviewed, I mean, he changed, you said, you've said this, that <laughs> your interview with him has really did change your life, right? Well, that, there's, yeah, there's no question about that. Uh, I so mean, maybe tell first... us about that, because that's like a really, like, important part of um your yeah. your your writing career as well completely completely no, uh, it was a very i mean it, whether first love or not it was an incredibly important relationship uh, for sure and um it came about because in order to partly get to new york city and spend more time listening to house music and immersing myself in, in that scene and i was a particularly big fan of of louis vega at that moment he was just kind of ruling basically and he was obviously based in new york city so I kind of went over to New York City to be closer to the music and also uh, decided to study for a doctorate so that I could you know, ostensibly work towards getting a job in academia where I'd be able to teach and also write basically books. I realised I wanted to get deep into cultural research. So what was your PhD thesis the, on? Well, initially the PhD thesis was going to be, it was, I'd gone to study English literature in Colombia in part so that I could kind of also read literature and reconnect with my parents my dad had become this English teacher my mum loved literature and I just thought that through reading I could you know, 
explore emotional connection and feelings, which I think was a really good decision actually. And my initial, initially my doctorate was going to be on, it was a pretty crass or initially maybe simplistic idea of just looking at what I was loosely calling oppositional culture to Thatcherism, whether that kind of came in the form of the novels of Salman Rushdie, the plays and films of Hanif Qureshi, or rave culture, mm. or all this, this kind of, and I was trying to find a way to link these different forms of expression, if you like. Uh, and then quite soon into my studies, because I initially I was just kind of also doing the basic reading that you need to do when you're switching into a new subject area, really, which for me was kind of literature and cultural studies. Um, and it was while I was making my way through these these classes that another, uh, that a mentor professor um, who also kind of did some journalistic work. So there was this whole thing for me about academia maybe being a bit of, uh, a bit of an ivory tower drop where you're just kind of closeted away and you speak to a small community of academics and, uh, and some interested students. And I didn't want to lead that kind of life. But this me neither. Fuck yeah, no. One of my mentor professors at Columbia University suggested that in addition to doing the research I was doing, uh, I write a, in his words, quick book. Oh, <laughs> a quick <laughs> exactly. book that ends Here up being go. massive. Exactly. So it's going to be about dance cu- dance culture and rave culture and uh, basically the criminalisation of rave, which the John Major government mm. attempted to do when it passed this thing called the Criminal Justice Act mm-hmm. in 1994. Mm. That was going to be the book. I was really into it. I was obsessed with house music at the time. I had mm. almost zero interest in I mean, yeah, pretty much zero interest in going back to the 1970s. Like I, like many other people at that particular moment, thought that the disco was mainly a cheesy era, mm-hmm. you know, characterised by, you know, fun, but maybe slightly commercial music and Saturday Night Fever and Studio 54. And I didn't want to go there in the least bit. Uh, but then early into the research for this book on this quick, sacred quick book, um, a guy called Stefan Prescott, who was co-running this record store called Dance Tracks, mm-hmm. uh, where I was going to buy records. Isn't that where Colleen, our like. mutual friend Colleen yeah, Murphy, yeah, used yeah, to work Colleen there, did didn't she? Well, yeah, that's where I, yeah, exactly. Good yeah. Point. That's where I first met Colleen. Mm. Uh, also, Joe Closell mm-hmm. was uh, running that store alongside Stefan, obviously went on to become this kind of, you know, pretty legendary figure within the scene. Um and it was Stefan who said, oh, there's this guy called David Mancuso. If you're writing a book about house music, basically, why, you know, why don't you speak to him just because he was a, he was sort of around somewhere at the beginning. And it's sort of, I tried to do a bit of research into David before I did the interview. Uh, not that much was out there about him. He had been uh, best only fleetingly mentioned in a few words. He was a very voice. private person, wasn't he? He was a very private person. And above all, in a sense, he wanted to keep the loft private. He mm. didn't want it to have a public... Um, to be kind of publicly recognisable because he thought that could damage the party. The mm-hmm. party was a rent party. It was about being invited into David's home. People on the invite list could bring a guest. Uh, David didn't try to control who was on the invite list as long as people behaved. That was all that was important. And it was this right to dance privately in your own home. And in order, in, in, which also included being able to dance in your own home after public bars and discotheques had closed for the night, which they had to by four o'clock in the morning, according to New York law, because that was the cabaret licensing law. And, uh, and if you opened and sold alcohol, you had to close at 4 a.m. But David's whole thing was, I'm not selling alcohol. I don't want to sell alcohol. I'm not, I'm not running a commercial bar. I want the freedom to dance in my own home. And he went to extraordinary lengths to kind of establish the right to do this. And when he won this kind of big fight with New York City, 
licensing authorities uh, towards the end of 1975. When he did that, that became the, became the green light effectively for places like uh, the Paradise Garage mm-hmm. and, the Saints, and the gallery uh, to open. First meet him. Let's talk about that. Like, yeah, yeah. So, so Stefan introduced. Yeah, so Stefan introduced me. Uh, Stefan, this guy running dance tracks, said, "Why didn't you speak to David?" I kind of. There was no one who at the time was saying, you know, this guy is a central figure in the history of dance music culture. I really, I even had someone who was kind of an established researcher who was about to even publish a book on house music tell me to not waste my time interviewing David Mancuso. He didn't do it in a nasty way. Oh my God, that sounds a bit arsy. Well, it was like, this guy's party used to be popular, but it hasn't been popular for ages. He has a weird sort of sound system that has high-end stereo effects, but you can't really hear the music if you go there. He doesn't mix... Uh, he, he doesn't uh, he doesn't even call he doesn't call himself a DJ he doesn't really like house music he calls himself a mi- musical maestro no <laughs> is that right who's this David, David Mancuso like... didn't he call himself no uh, no what was the time he just... so. no hang on what was it the musical word... host host musical that's host. it musical host yeah. yeah well if you think about that that's a quite humble for David this was a humble thing yeah so sure I don't, want, yeah. I, don't want, I don't want to be a performing DJ I don't go to clubs I don't do tricks I don't entertain people I invite people into my home I create an entire environment to make them welcome and comfortable and one of the things I also do is I put on music that I think my friends will like to dance to it was kind of like this model of the rent party in Harlem Harlem Renaissance yeah. in the 1920s mm-hmm. or something come into my home relax have a nice time meet some people and let's have a little dance um, so he didn't kind of want the you know the idea that he was even sort of performing really he was just kind of host as, as he was hosting people in his home he was also hosting people with music and it's also true that that term he only started to use that term later, um, but certainly it captures something about uh, the way that he understood his, his way throughout this whole thing. So I met David, and he, he, he was pretty down and out. He was really struggling. He'd also had a really rough period for at least, uh, I mean, at least 13 or 14 years. Because you met him, would it have been early 90s? Uh, it was nine, no, not there. It was 1997. 97, uh, yeah. Spring of 97. I'd been in New York for a couple of years at mm. that point. Um, yeah, he was down and out. It was he was you know he was trying to start parties up again, but the, it was it was it was a real struggle. He was back then. He was in some ways he was always the poorest person I know knew and would know in terms of the amount of money he had. Uh, he just had nothing. He spent it all on sound systems. Uh, well, he spent it on sound systems, and then he spent it on other stuff as well. Mm. Uh, when he had a somewhat dark period, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And there was some some addiction basically, mm-hmm. uh, which isn't a big secret. So, no, um, it's, but it's so so he he went through he went through a big personal struggle. He'd 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 been running these extraordinary parties for effectively fifteen years on Broadway, six or seven Broadway, and then Prince Street. And then he decided that when he was going to be served notice, he knew he had to leave Prince Street. And he also wanted to get out of Soho anyway, anyway, because Soho was wasn't really a community neighbourhood, and the artists weren't that welcoming of him, and prices were going up, and he thought, great. I'll go to the East Village, and he sort of was looking to buy a, he bought a place 
on uh, Avenue C and Third Street, and it just became this incredible struggle. And although David did manage to make Third Street work in some respects, he did take a two-year sabbatical in the late 1980s, at which point the space became a choice. And it became one of the places where Larry Levan would play for a bit after the Paradise Garage closed. Then David came back, but he was just struggling uh, in, his, in, in the way he was, let's say, regulating his life. And he was sort of bumping along the bottom. And I sat down and met him. And I, one thing to say is I immediately liked him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, I think, as in love says that I described him as a kind of cross between a biblical prophet and a teddy bear. <laughs> uh, he was very warm. He was warm, yeah. though. He was, he had lots of hair. He was very sweet. He had this big smile. He was he was very engaging and very, you know, obviously very intelligent and absolutely passionate. And I just, these things appealed to me immediately. Um, and now he also had this kind of, you know, very, this kind of charisma. Certainly back in, back at the peak of the parties, especially when initially for the first couple of years at Prince Street, his booth was raised. People were often, would often, you know, would comment later that they thought they were in the presence of someone who clearly resembled Jesus Christ. No one has told me they thought David was Jesus, but they certainly had the sense of being in the, in the presence of someone whose character, you know, had a, had a spiritual aura and a way of communicating that felt very, very powerful and these deep attachments definitely were formed. And when I first met David, he did, you know, he was kind of, he looked, you know, he was pretty rough. Uh, he was, you know, he, he was quite overweight and he just was a bit bedraggled really. But this was also about David. Well, he had lost kind of everything really, almost. But he also didn't take, uh, you know, he wasn't that bothered about clothes and outward material possessions and that kind of thing. He was just completely driven by this idea of party space. And uh, one thing that had emerged as he was whilst he was kind of lo- leaving Prince Street and then moving to his third space where it all started to go a bit wrong on on uh, third, third Street and Avenue C was that he, a, a friend from the orphanage where the children's home where he'd grown up, yeah. tracked him down and, and basically said, Hi, do you remember me? And David did. It was a reconnection to, for the first time really, it was sort of, it was a way for him to sort of reconnect with him through where he'd grown up, which from about two days old, was in this children's home mm. where a nun called Sister Alicia, who David would then go on to uh, reconnect with again, had raised him and however many other kids were in that care. And that was so it, interesting because I, def- I definitely think there's like a theme here because I was when I interviewed Smoking <laughs> Joe, right, right. she also came from like a children's home foster care background. And just oh, this idea of finding like the dance floor as a as yeah. a new home, a safe space, of yeah. feeling like you belong. No, it's incredible. Well, well, the one I mean, the really amazing thing here is that Sister Alicia herself, because this wasn't happening before she she arrived apparently at the at the children's home a few days after David arrived, and quite early on she started to introduce this thing where she would put on birthday parties or parties for the kids. Certainly when there was a birthday, but as David sort of said. Well, somewhat you know imaginatively as as at every opportunity and uh, a writer called matt mason did go and uh, interview sister alicia she does just describe this kind of way of wanting to give the sense of kids a sense of belonging a sense of, of giving and which is something that he a sense of joy and took. of course yes exactly this is exactly what yeah. david went on to do himself mm. initially clearly unconsciously but in love saves that are kind of you know the first lock parties i don't know describe david as being the the bearded sister Alicia, mm. you know, because it's because what David is doing is also giving unto others things that they hadn't necessarily received as a child or enjoyed as they were growing up, which was again a mm. So a lot of the people who were going to the loft were outsiders. Mm-hmm. Quite a, a significant proportion of the of the dancers there were black 
okay mm-hmm. this party was always open to any everyone well, what was never... special about it from what i've read is that is is that is so mixed and racially mixed, mixed ages it just didn't matter so yes, you know it, it was absolutely mixed but you know there was also this thing early on of me saying to david so what's your party black gay party was your party and david after a while was just like look no one was checking your identity at the door mm-hmm. it didn't matter what your your race your mm-hmm. se- your sexuality um your class your um gender um all you, all that mattered was that you wanted to come and, and be, you know, and, and, and share the share the ritual, share the musical spiritual ritual. So, so yes, it was very mixed, but also it's not like it was mixed in a in a conscious way. In a sense, it was just open to people who wanted to go there, and the, often the people who wanted to go there were people who were seeking something more than what was going on in let's, let's say the shorthand mainstream society. In the 1960s and the 1970s, there was a big countercultural movement of people who were looking to explore themselves within a, you know, within an alternative set of values, and these these embrace civil rights and embrace uh, sexual liberation and include embrace feminism, and it was about new flexible forms of living and forming new forms of community, and experimenting with with experiences that would be could be could come on could come through acid or LSD. And all of these things came together, and David kind of oversaw that um, in a very beautiful way. And I, you know, but one of the arguments I make is that, you know, for all of you know New York City's reputation as being a, a melting pot city, this is the mythology. There's a certain truth in the mythology. There are also some limitations to the mythology. One of the limitations is if you were, let's say, a guy. You couldn't even legally dance on a discotheque dance floor with another guy. I know, it's isn't that crazy? End of 1971. That's crazy, so exclu- isn't it? It's mad. So the yeah. exclusions in this so-called melting pot city, the exclusions and the divisions and the I think the divisions very, are also real. still there, actually. They, the are, communities. they are still there. David, so how did meeting him impact on your own outlook on life? Yeah, well, it just it just all it kind of I wouldn't say it all changed there and then, but I would say that when I met David, I met someone who I've just had the best conversation about dancehall culture with that I've ever had. Uh, I was at the time going to Body and Soul. I love Body and Soul. It was quite a party. It's where Francois Borkin and Joe Joseph and Daniel. Oh, I did go a couple of times, you know. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. It was definitely the party that was kind of the dance. I saw a rat right, run across the dance floor <laughs> oh. when I was there. All right. That's probably normal, was it? <laughs> uh, well, I, can't, I don't know if you're talking about literally a rat. I, I it really see. was. Or I don't think I was I was tripping. I think it was. <laughs> uh, that brings one unfortunate memory back, but I won't go there. But uh, no, it was, a, it, was a great, it was a great party. But as soon as I, you know, one of the things that happened when I met David, I was supposed to be writing a book about house music that was going to begin in New York City and Chicago in the mid-1980s. And David said, no, 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 you've got it. You need to come back to February 1970, which was when he held... On Valentine's Day, right? Yeah, his first, uh, exactly, his first Love Saves the Day party, Mm. which became... So this is actually a good way to kind of talk about your second love um, of the, is your influence. Well, this is, you know, this is where love lives. You, 
<laughs> I have to segue it in somehow. It's all love. It's, a, it's all it's love. All it's love all but love. if we, love. you know, I know it all merges into itself. Yeah, no, no, you're quite right. Shouldn't be compartmentalized. I just like the way I just like the way you're putting it. Um, but you, the, oh, sorry, I just got my foot caught up in a wire. Um, so then when you, so the second one, Lucky Cloud Sound System. So it would be fair to say that the loft inspired this, right? Yeah. Well, in a, yeah, definitely very explicitly so if you could just talk us through what for the listeners who may not be familiar with that tell yeah, us about the lucky cloud sound system yeah well it was the love saves the day the first book was going through production uh, would eventually be published in february 2004 and while it was going through production or basically as it was even about to enter into production uh, david turned to me and also to colleen murphy uh, who was a good friend of david's from new york city who had hosted some parties at the loft uh, when David wasn't able to be there, I think, or something along those lines. So David knew Colleen uh, from New York City. He knew and me Colleen was been, has been featured on this podcast, listeners. Yeah, you can go exactly. back and listen again. It's there. Yeah, it's a brilliant I'm, interview. I'm, I'm honoured to be on the same page. <laughs> Thank you for the invitation again. And again oh, so, pleasure. Uh, and um, so, yeah, so David turned to, to, to Colleen and he turned to me and he said, how, how about we start to host loft-style parties? I don't think ever call it a lot party at least not at that point in london david was still here so he'd finally he'd, i'm just yeah by this point he'd lost the final uh, home in which that was big enough for him to host a party and he'd moved to this tiny tiny apartment it could only include just one of his beloved clipshorn speakers in there the rest all had to stay in storage so it's this tiny space he couldn't host parties there anymore he got going again uh, in a in a community oriented space on second avenue He'd started to go to Japan again. In a sense, all this goes again, by the way, goes against his ethos or because he only ever wanted to play in his own home hmm. because he loved the comfort and the intimacy and hosting these parties. So the idea that he would travel around and do these parties, to him, that was a bit more akin to being a DJ. But the thing with David is I'm not just going to go and show up and DJ behind a couple of turntables, check in, check out, get my paycheck. Um, have a good evening, do my best, but that's the basic ritual. He was like, I want to create these environments now or work with people who will help me create these environments in Japan, in London, in Glasgow, in Dublin. In, and in the end, after a few years, the places that David chose to return to again and again were, uh, were in Japan and also the, the London party. And the London party started when David approached Colleen and myself. And I wasn't initially entirely sure. My first reaction, actually, always remember was to say but David I'm not a party promoter I think those were the words I used I'm pretty sure anyway whatever Dave, yeah, David's reply was to say exactly and Lucky really Cloud has started at the light bar didn't it exactly so but we also we had all this equipment and suddenly we needed uh, an even bigger we already had a team to help us uh, set up these parties but we did need a bigger team uh, because there was all this kind of carrying of, of this equipment up these pretty steep, uh, steep two flights of stairs in this. Oh dear, have to watch your back. <laughs> well, there was, you know, there were indeed, there, it was a bit precarious. And also, you're carrying the system that is not designed to be lugged around. This is not a PA system, it's a high end stereo system. So, at that point, we kind of more or less thought, yeah, we did form Lucky Cloud Sound System. Lucky Cloud is a, a reference to an Arthur Russell song. Uh, That's that right, was, yeah of nice for the it kind of captured something about this kind of sweet airy very light very musical quality so his attention to detail was just unbelievable 
and this expressed itself also in the, in the sound system. And, but it was also about his own position in the party. He didn't want everyone facing him, adulating him, cheering him, because for him, the party was be at its maximum energy, have its most, effect, most progressive effect. If people are dancing with each other, and if everyone is facing the DJ, then basically most people in the room are dancing with the back of the person who is in front of them. And that's not necessarily a very good way of getting good energy in the room. Yeah. So David would set up the sound system uh, so and set up the turntables. Everything was organized so that effectively people were being encouraged not to face the DJ booth, but to dance with each other. He wants yeah. to be invisible. And in a way, that's because he also wants, you know, he had, I mean, you know, he had a psychedelic outlook on life, a very universal, cosmic, spiritual view on life. And he really... You know, he thought that the entire universe is effectively one big dance. Everything is a is vibrating atoms. That's all that there is in the universe, plus whatever dark matter is supposed to be. Um, and he said, when we get into a party where there is all this kinetic vibrating energy, you know, sound is basically vibrating sound waves um, that come into our bodies and then make us vibrate even more. It's all vibration. Um, and David's whole thing was that you know this is this captures this is the moment when we're dancing when we basically tap into the basic reality of the universe. This is what his parties were about. to make it work but ultimately it wasn't about him ultimately it was about this it was about this kind of creating this community this community situation that gave him a sense of belief because that's what he basically had as a child exactly and yeah. other people were getting out of it and he didn't want he said his line was it will all, none of it will be worthwhile if it just stops when you die now one could also say look you know his influence the books the, the, the reputation of what he had done the number of people who danced on his dance floor they had all would all remember this party and they could all go off and go about their lives and do things that would keep that spirit that memory that energy alive so one could say look the party didn't have to keep going in order for the idea of the loft to keep going but david also wanted these this kind of effectively what had been his lifelong obsession his lifelong work the thing that he had devoted there was an early point in running his parties on broadway uh, when his when a boyfriend at the time called Larry Patterson, um, turned to him and said, look, Dave, what's more important to you, the party or me? And that, that, became, that was the, obviously the end of the relationship. And it was almost as if from that point onwards, David did have this clarity that the party was the central focus of his entire life. So he wanted that to continue. And he tried, and, and the, one of the amazing ways he did this is he tried to set up these, and I just thought this was the, the best thing about what he did in forget about the details of the sound system and all of that kind of thing, which are very important. But the fundamental thing that David did that I thought was just like you know, extraordinary, especially given his situation in life and his complete lack of money, um, was to say, when I can't play in my own home or my own party that's now in a community centre one four times a year in New York City, when I can't play in New York City, 
I'm going to go and try and cre help create a community in these other spaces. And out of that community will grow a party that will have longevity. So I've interviewed David many times, obviously, once for some sort of magazine. I can't quite track down the date of this interview for all of the details for some reason, but I remember it clearly. And because it was for a magazine audience, I had to kind of dump all, all everything that I already knew about David and interview him as if it was for the first time so that the audience would be able to follow the thinking. And for some reason, just to open the, the, the interview, I asked David this question. So David, how do you organize a party? Very simple question, almost meant to be a joke, but actually got one of the, one of the pretty interesting response I got. And I won't go through the whole answer, but the, the, the first thing David said is, the first thing you need for a party is a group of friends who want to dance. Most people at that time of asking, because we were in the era of the cult of the DJ, most people would have said, oh, you need a good DJ, that's the first thing. Because that was where people's thinking was at the time. It was all about the DJ. If you're putting on a party, who's going to be headline DJ? We'll bring the, we'll bring the bodies through the floor, through the door. <laughs> through the floor that's what yeah, party well, i'd put on <laughs> that as well through the roof yeah, exactly through the floor through um, the roof. sorry to interrupt you but yeah. we have to wrap up in a minute oh, i know okay, we yeah. might we no, might have yeah. to do a part two um because i don't know this this has been this has been really good fun i love i love talking about this stuff so thinking about obviously the lucky cloud sound system and then of course your own party uh, called yeah. all your friends how did that all then our all our all sorry our friends. all our friends okay. no it's easy to... all my friends all, all my friends, your friends or whatever all our friends, all our friends. Yeah, all uh, how our did friends. that then has that then led to your podcast that you um... yeah i mean all our friends is the party i started with some of the other a number of other guys who were involved in lucky cloud and this offshoot party called beauty and the bee because i felt like there was something else i wanted to do within this party network that has kind of uh, grown and flourished through Lucky Cloud taking roots in London back in 2003. So, so that was that's all our friends, and that's where I also started to do some detailing. It's something I found really enthralling. There was something I, in the end, quite late in life, felt I wanted to speak, say something with with, with a couple of turntables and some vinyl. Up until that point, I'd always been thought of myself as only really ever wanting to dance and now I still love dancing but it's nice to put on a bit of music as well and see how that goes down with something that's and the name all our really friends engaging. is really just fits thematically doesn't it with, yeah well yeah. that's the idea is it's sort of, well, I mean one of the big things was to get back to this you know to give even even more emphasis really to this idea of intimacy I wanted a really intimate small party uh, using the same kind of sound system um, and it's a reference to an Arthur Russell that's game. right yeah uh, so there's this line in Go Bang that runs, I want to see all my friends at once go bang. That's my favourite record, probably. So instead of all my friends, I took it to all our friends because, again, it's just a... It's a perfect name. Yes. So tell us yeah, a little bit about your podcast. So Love is the Message. Yeah, thanks. So this is something I started. I'm not quite sure if it's six months ago or now it's nine months ago. But uh, Jeremy, so this very close friend of mine who was a co-partner, still is a co-partner in Lucky Cloud Sound System, also runs Beauty and the Bee uh, with these two guys called Cedric and Cyril, who are also involved in Lucky Cloud. Um, uh, Jeremy is a colleague at the University of East London. And sort of quite early on into the pandemic, we were told that we were going to lose half of our jobs each and we were pretty shocked about it. Um, it was, you know, it wasn't a very good moment. I don't think the university behaved that honourably, to be honest. 
the reasons that were given for the cuts were, turned out to be entirely spurious. That, oh, you know, that sounds like academia. And the rest of, yeah, so it was pretty rough, but it became this point at which, because Gem and I had been having these constant conversations basically about the dance floor music and politics uh, or counterculture since we met at the University of East London back in 1999, which is when I started there. Gem had been there for a year. And uh, we just decided that we, you know, let's start having these conversations and put them into the form of a podcast. Um, so we ended up deciding to call it Love is the Message after the MFSB track of the same name that was released at the end of 1973 and became the sort of underground party uh, anthem of the early 1970s uh, New York City and was one of David Mancuso's uh, favorite records. And yeah, it's a podcast that sort of starts uh, in 1970, in a sense, and it, its primary reference point is is David and the Loft and the Wife. So would you say it's kind of like an audio version of the book, almost? Um, it's a, a sort of the book, but it also goes much more widely, because it's a, it's really about the development of music um, and what, we, what we're loosely calling uh, countercultural music in New York City. But we also you know, have been spending, for example, of the third series, which we've been calling, uh, it's, it's kind of an exploration of what we're calling Afro-Psychedelia. We began with, say, spiritual jazz and gospel in the United States, but we spent kind of three episodes in Africa, and we're doing five episodes in, in the Caribbean, or we're doing two episodes in Brazil and a couple in Cuba. So it really moves around. I mean, the point being that, you know, when we spent three episodes in Africa, one of the uh, one of the cultures uh, we started to look at was, was Cameroonian uh, music, in uh, from 1965 to 1975, this was part of generally a, a, a view of Africa, and this is where Manu Dubango's uh, Sol Makosa was recorded, and that went on to become a huge, huge, uh, wasn't it? Anthem, yeah, a huge record yeah. that we loved, and it became the first record that uh, we we or this is partly my argument uh, I've said today it was the first record that we can where we can really say the DJs turned that into a hit because it got into the Hot 100 of the US charts, the Billboard That's, charts. These are the days, of course, any, where DJs had any, a lot more power. Without, exactly. Yeah. And this was without radio play. Radio mm. wasn't touching. So even though in the podcast we're travelling to Africa, we're travelling to Jamaica and all these places, in a way what, what we're doing is constantly exploring this very rich global music, mm. especially a lot of it taking place in the Southern Hemisphere, that really influenced what was going on in New York City. You know, we're going to end the current series in Puerto Rico, but that then comes to salsa uh, in New York City and again in the first. So interesting. And for the so, listeners, if you go to the show blurb, I'm going to put a link to Tim's podcast oh, in there. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, so it's free to listen. Uh, we we basically we uh, put up a new episode once every two weeks, and then every other week we record something for our patrons. Uh, everyone, of course, can listen for free, and we're really happy and may mainly just want people to uh, um, to tune in um, to the show. But then we, we, because it's kind of the interplay for us to try and keep things going in the face of losing half of our jobs, we are, of course, really happy if people can support the show by visiting our Patreon page, uh, which is just, if you just search for Love is the Message and Patreon, it's a lovely way to wrap up this podcast actually from love saves oh. the day to love is the message yeah. to where love lives love 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 so love 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 Fantastic. it's been uh, lovely <laughs> it's been, having you yes. on the, on the podcast today <laughs> love, lovely chat with you. <laughs> and I'm so sorry we have to cut it short we could chat all afternoon yeah um, but thanks so much and I will see you on a dance floor soon Tim for Good sure thank you
Okay, Thanks goodbye. Again. Take care. We'll love me. We'll love me. Follow me down. Deep down, we'll love me. Well, sorry to say that's the end of another show, but don't worry, I'll be back again soon with some more fabulous guests. I've got some real crackers in the fire, so keep an ear out. It's going to be good. This podcast was recorded at the Slick Studios at Soho Radio and was edited and produced by me. And don't forget, do follow me at Dr. Lulu LeVay. And if you like this show, do please subscribe, comment, share with your friends. And remember, I love you.